Smith, and this is more than one lesson. Thank you for listening. Those of you who are still listening, it has been so long, as always, uh, but I feel like this is the longest it's been uh, between episodes, so much so that I realize the last episode that we did um, was, I believe, early October, and at that point, my documentary, Valley of the Shadow, The Spiritual Value of Horror, had not even been uh, released uh, and as of now, it's been released for like three months. Uh, so I've not had a chance to actually say on the podcast that uh, you can now see my documentary, Valley of the Shadow, The Spiritual Value of Horror. Uh, you can find it one of two ways. You can find it, uh, you can rent it on Vimeo, uh, Vimeo On Demand, or you can go to Rediscover Television, which is a small streaming platform that was kind enough to bankroll this documentary. Uh, the film is two hours and 20 minutes. I co-wrote it with Reed Lackey, who a uh, former uh, co-host of this show. Um, it was narrated by Bill Oberst Jr., former guest of the show. And uh, yeah, it's it's something that I am proud of. I A lot of work, a lot of time went into it. It is currently making the rounds at various film festivals. It has been accepted to, to several, which feels really good. And, the, and it's been accepted to some horror festivals, which also feels particularly good. Um, because, yes, certainly I did want this to reach uh, a, a, a Christian audience, but I also wanted to do right by horror fans. And so the fact that it's showing up at some horror f- uh, festivals is very exciting to me. Um, but anyway, so yeah, check that out at, uh, rediscovertelevision.com or you can, uh, rent it on Vimeo. So, uh, a quick update on me. Um, I, one of the reasons that it has been so long since, um, episodes is that I did get a job. I actually got a job with Rediscover Television. Um, I'm still teaching, still doing that, but, uh, I got along so splendidly with the people over at Rediscover that uh, that we found a job for me as a curator, producer, uh, all kinds of things. So um, that has taken up a great deal of my time. And uh, sadly, you know, between the kids and teaching and that new job um, and everything else, it really, uh, something had to go, and unfortunately, it was more than one lesson. So, um, you know, I look for opportunities to to do this show. Certainly, I'm still sort of tuned in to movies, uh, like newer movies that might sort of set off that uh, alarm. I've seen several, and so there are definitely episodes that are kind of bouncing around in my head. But this is one that I've been wanting to do for a while. 
and it is Ford v Ferrari, directed by James Mangold. Uh, the film came out in 2019. Um, I don't know how many of you saw it. It was nominated for multiple Oscars, including Best Picture. And it is a film that I... There's a word I've been using increasingly um, as I get older, and the word is sturdy. It's just a very sturdy movie. Um, you you go in there, and, and as is often the case with James Mangold, you just feel like you're in very good hands. Uh, you really feel like everything is working well. It is a well-shot film. It's a well-scripted film. It's a wonderfully acted film. There's a lot going on. Uh, in Ford v Ferrari, and there's just something, um, I don't know, there's just something reliable about it. Uh, it it's a film that I feel like is is extremely rewatchable. I would, uh, I would compare it to a film sort of like Moneyball. I liked Moneyball more, but that might just be because I'm a, more of a baseball fan to the extent that I'm a fan of anything that could be called a sport. Um, but... The thing that I, one of the reasons that I think of it as, as sturdy, it's rare that I describe, you know, a superhero movie or just sort of a, a mindless franchise action movie. I don't mean to bash, uh, you know, action movies is mindless. Uh, I like action movies, but, um, you know, they're, they're just sort of those popcorn movies that tend to be made primarily for a younger audience, um, teenagers, people in their 20s. And when you come across something like a Moneyball, something like a Ford v Ferrari, certainly people uh, at that age could enjoy it, but it feels like it's a movie for grown-ups. Um, and this is something that happens every once in a while. Is there, there's uh, certainly around Oscar time, you get plenty of movies that are made for grown-ups, but they tend to be more independent, whereas a film like Ford v Ferrari or Moneyball or Hidden Figures or something like American Sniper, these are big mainstream movies um a star is born uh, speaking of, of bradley cooper um these are mainstream movies with big stars and big budgets they are made with the same sensibility as you know a marvel film or something like that and there's just something refreshing for me and maybe i'm just turning into an old grump or something like that but you know, when you are a, a student of, of film history, you realize that movies for grown-ups uh, used to dominate uh, the box office. Um, the thing that I often point out is that uh, in 1979, the, the movie Kramer vs. Kramer won Best Picture, uh, but it was also, I believe, number one at the box office. And that's a year that had a Star Trek movie, the Alien movie, uh, Apocalypse Now, um, it had a musical, it had all, all that jazz, like, that was a movie, that, that was a year of, of big, like, genre movies, and the number one movie that year was this, you know, fairly contained divorce drama, um, albeit starring, you know, big stars, but that was number one, Rain Man, speaking of Dustin Hoffman Oscar-winning performances, Rain Man was the number one movie of 1988. That is an R-rated film for grown-ups. And <clears throat> so whenever uh, whenever Hollywood releases a mainstream movie that has a grown-up sensibility, it, it gets my attention, and uh, it's not a guarantee that it will always be good, of course, but it definitely gets my attention. And 
Uh, Ford v. Ferrari definitely feels like that to me. Um, I don't know how many of you have watched it. Uh, it is based on a true story, uh, and as you might assume, based on the title, it is about the Ford Motor Company uh, deciding that they wanted to build a race car so that they could beat the Ferrari company at a very uh, prestigious race in Europe uh, called Le Mans. Um, it's apparently like a 24-hour race. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It you know certainly you learn you learn a lot uh, when you watch the film. I know very little about racing of any kind. And uh, so you learn about these real-life figures like Ken Miles and Carol Shelby. And, you know, it is a racing film, and there's definitely a, a, a cinematic history of car chases. And while this is not necessarily a chase, uh, it's the same basic principle. And the film, which won Best Editing and Sound, I believe, uh, it's it definitely is cut together in an exciting way. The races are very exciting. Like you can understand why, uh, this is that this sport has appealed to, to people, not merely spectators, but also the drivers and the, and the, uh, manufacturers and, and car designers and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's one of the things that I like about the, the best sports movies is for fans of that sport. It, it reminds them of why they love it, but for people who know nothing about it, it it can still welcome them, welcome them in, and put them in the mind of somebody who's a fan. You know, I haven't gone and watched any any racing since then, uh, since seeing Ford v Ferrari, but uh, but I still have a respect for people who do enjoy it. And I think at the at the center of the film is a really nice like friendship. Uh, Situation between the characters of Carol Shelby and Ken Miles, played by Matt Damon and Christian Bale, respectively. Uh, I've been a big fan of Matt Damon for a long time. I've covered multiple movies starring him uh, on this show, and there's just uh, a quality to him that you know. If if this is a sturdy movie, he is a sturdy actor. He just has a, a sensibility to him and an instinct to him that makes him makes it possible for him to be in the Ocean's 11 movies and then turn around and be in the informant and then he can play extremely intellectual characters like in the talented Mr. Ripley or he can play working class characters like in The Departed or Ford v Ferrari. And I think one thing that is important for a movie like this is that his character he has several long monologues and you know occasionally like a dialogue scene where he has to rattle off these statistics or logistics or uh, or whatever regarding a race or regarding a car and you know i, I if you would if you were to ask me i'd say like oh yes Matt damon he knows everything that he's saying he knows all about it I imagine he probably doesn't. I imagine that he doesn't actually know as much as the real Carol Shelby. Um, but, you know, he he carries himself in such a way uh, that he you genuinely believe that not merely that he's feeling what he's feeling, but that he knows what he knows. Um, it's it's a difficult thing when you're playing somebody who is an expert 
at something. Um, you know, uh, many, many years ago, I used to act uh, on stage, you know, it's in various like community productions and stuff like that. And there were times when I had to, uh, when my character had to, had to say something knowledgeably and I would say it in rehearsal and the director would say, uh, yeah, cut. Hey, Tyler, here's what this means. And I'd be like, oh yeah, okay. That, yeah, that makes sense now. Uh, you know, I was just saying what felt right, but it's like, yeah, but you, people can tell when you don't actually know. And so Matt Damon has the ability to just seem like he's, he knows what he's doing. And I'm sure he did some, some research. Um, but yeah, he and, and Christian Bale have these, uh, long passages where they have to convey something about, uh, the art and the mechanics of racing. And, they both do wonderfully, and Christian Bale, as Ken Miles, once again playing a real person. All of these are, are real people. Um, <clears throat> he plays a guy who's very eccentric and very temperamental, and it's tough because the the nature of the story is that, oh well, he's he's a driver and he's working for uh, Ford Motor Company, which is very um, conservative and very traditional and it's a bunch of stuffed shirts and they're very respectable um and he's you know sort of a wild card and <clears throat> when you have a situation like that it's very easy to just let the the basic humor of the situation play itself out and just and that can seem a little bit generic and unbelievable and it can feel a little bit pandering um that's something that a movie like this can do very easily is is hey can look at look at all these uh, crazy uh, look at all these stuffed shirts uh, like it was Caddyshack or something like that like isn't it fun just taking the air out of them no like they are all you know these other characters played by John Bernthal and Tracy Letts and Josh Lucas like they are also fully developed characters and what I like is that they also the the film also does not make Ken Miles out to be a a, a perfectly offbeat character like he has flaws he has his own demons um and yes that has made him a little strange a little goofy and maybe even a little genius but it has also made him genuinely difficult to work with not merely with uh you know the more traditional types but also with uh carol shelby and so i think he grounds that character whereas it would have been very easy like very easy to just play that character is completely over the top. Um, and so you have these two very different types of characters because Carol is uh, more down to earth uh, and Ken is a little bit more over the top. Um, but they do feel like people that you could actually know. Um, and I feel like that really, that really helps the, helps the film. I keep, I keep comparing it to Moneyball. That's not the companion film. But that is, again, sort of my gold standard for this sort of thing because um, when it comes right down to it, yes, you can have these amazing action sequences, these amazing racing sequences or, or baseball sequences, but we need to believe that the outcome has an effect on real people. And so we need to get a sense of who those people are. And it really comes through in Ford v. Ferrari. Um <clears throat> And speaking of of Tracy Letts, he plays uh, he plays I think he's like Henry Ford the third or something like that. Um, and 
you know, he's a guy who is very egotistical. He wants things his own way. And so he comes in and he like lays down the law and you're meant to see him as just kind of a guy who's a little bit clueless. Uh, his name's Ford. So that's why he has the status that he has. Um, but, uh, oh, it's Henry. Sorry. I'm looking at my notes here. He's Henry Ford the second. So he does make reference to his father. Um, and Tracy Letts is an actor and, and a, and a writer and a, a playwright. Um, but as an actor, he, I found him to be extremely um, reliable. Uh, I remember he did such a wonderful job in Lady Bird playing a character who is uh, very, uh, very melancholy, but still very much seeming like the kind of father that you could turn to uh, only to discover that, oh, wait, he actually has issues of his own that he's trying to work out. Um, and in playing... Henry Ford II, he does know that like this is a character that probably is used to having things his own way and probably was really frustrating to work with. Um, but there's this wonderful moment that I that I adore uh, in which Matt Damon <clears throat> bring uh, sorry uh, Carol Shelby brings Henry Ford II into the car that they've been designing and drives it as fast basically as fast as it can go. And it just like blows Ford away. I mean, to the point that when they finally finish, he's crying. And it, at first it seems like kind of a funny thing. Like, oh, this big bloviating guy is so scared by this speed that he's crying. But then you realize that he's not crying because he's scared. He's crying because he's touched. Um, he's crying because he didn't know how amazing this car was and he maybe he didn't know how amazing cars could be and he says that he wishes that his dad could be here to see this moment and it's such a it's such a nice human moment for the character because it's so standard for us to see you know executive characters who simply don't get it and never will get it and admittedly we do have a character like that with Josh Lucas and I think that they Maybe don't treat his character very well. He's pretty two-dimensional. But um, but Henry Ford, like, they could have made him oafish, and they often do, but they also make him intelligent, and they make him smart enough that when presented with the facts and when, and when presented with the truth, like, look how amazing this car is that we're designing, uh, he will acknowledge it and will embrace it. And so it's a really nice moment, and it's it's a, a moment among several others that got me thinking about what I think the film is is really about. Yes, it is a true story about uh, this race and about these uh, these real people, but I do think that it works as a pretty good metaphor for things as well, um, because here you have a situation where. You do have a corporate mindset with the Ford Motor, Com Motor Company. Uh, they have something they want to prove, and so they bring in Carroll Shelby to put together a car. So he puts together his crew, and they and they start piecing this car together. But he also realizes, like, well, I I'm not actually able to drive this car. He Carroll Shelby used to be a driver, but uh, for his health, he couldn't be anymore. So I was like, well, I can't do this, so we need to bring in a driver. Like, I can assemble the car, 
but I can't drive it. And so that's when they bring in Ken Miles, who is moody and temperamental, and he needs to have things just his way, but if he gets his way, then he will drive the car and he will win the race. Um, But he and Carol have to fight for every inch that they get from the company. And then by the end of the of the film, um, the the this is a spoiler, I suppose. Uh, the company sort of undercuts Ken, like he has the opportunity to win the race, um, but instead he is encouraged to essentially sort of fall back a little bit and cross the finish line with the other cars that Ford had in the race. So it's a win for Ford, not a win for Ken Miles. Uh, And he does that, and in doing so, uh, it winds up on a technicality being that he does not win the race. Um, And so essentially, the company's saying like, hey, we're the ones that made the car, it's it's driving under our banner, it should be about us, don't worry, you'll, you'll still get the credit, and in the end, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't get the win. And so... Looking at all of these characters and the way they relate to each other, um, and the fact that the film is directed by James Mangold, that I think is worth noting. Because if you don't know who James Mangold is, he has been uh, a, a Hollywood staple for many years. But I would say the films that he's that he's become best known for have been in the last probably fifteen years. Movies like Three Ten to Yuma, but then especially The Wolverine, which I think was 2013, and Logan, which came out, I, th- I want to say 2018, maybe 17, I don't remember. But anyway, you know, superhero movies. And one thing that it's, that's always interesting, I, I for those that know about Battleship Pretension, my other podcast, you know, we, we do topic-based uh, uh, episodes. And I always wanted to do an episode partially inspired by this movie honestly but I always wanted to do an, to do an episode about like what what is a director like we should pay attention to what a director does next by which I mean they have their big breakthrough they have their money making movies and then what do they do because I think that's really worth paying attention to the Wolverine did a did fairly well Logan was is considered like one of the best you know superhero movies ever I don't agree um, but it was extremely well received and it did very well, uh, at the box office. And lo and behold, he, James Mangold makes this movie next in many ways. Like I said, Mangold is a very reliable director. There's a very reliable type film. It just makes sense in a lot of ways. But when you look at the stencil, I remember that's a, a term that a, a teacher of mine used back in film school. If you look at the stencil of Ford v. Ferrari, you have a corporate mindset, somebody whose job it is to essentially produce a specific product and then bring somebody else in to realize that product. But in, but, and, and the, the company is only willing to let the product um, stand on its own for so long before they say, hey, this is really about us. I have to assume, not that, the, not that Logan was... Uh, you know, part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, Marvel had not yet purchased Fox by then. Um, but now, Marvel, now uh, Disney owns everything. 
And so uh, it owns the rights to X-Men. So, you know, be on the lookout for that. But either way, he was part of this big franchise. And when you're part of a big franchise, you're only ever going to be allowed so much um, leeway by the corporate people. Because, hey, we have an image to maintain. We have a legacy to maintain. Um, so yes, we appreciate what you're doing, but at the same time, uh, make sure that you, that you're in line with, with what we want you to do. Um, I genuinely feel like Ford v. Ferrari as despite all of the thing, all, everything else about it, I, I feel like the reason that James Mangold was attracted to it is because he probably felt a great deal of kinship with Ken Miles and probably Carol Shelby as well. Um, having to put together this very uh, effective and popular film or couple of films uh, under the watchful eye of people who are not inherently creative. Um, Which I think is why uh, that scene with Henry Ford and Carol Shelby, uh, why that scene is so important is you know, every once in a while you, you hear about like a studio executive, um, who really does seem to sort of get it for lack of a better term. And they really try to give the, the filmmakers as much freedom as they can because they, they really believe in, in film as an art form. And they, when they see a director that they really like, or they, they see a film really developing under their, under their, um, you know, on their watch and they really seem to embrace it. That does happen from time to time. Um, you don't hear about it very often. Um, I'm I'm always more than willing to lay any num- any manner of evil at, at the feet of executives and studio executives, um, but uh, including and maybe especially the the evil of uh, being uncreative and not thinking in a creative way, uh, which is frustrating when talking about a creative medium. Um, but yeah, and so. When I when I look at Ford v Ferrari, I I think it's very I think it's very clever in a lot of ways. There's I think it's very metaphorical. I think it's exploring things in a way that some people who might not be inclined to think artistically uh, that's not an insult. Like the film is a big mainstream movie, and so it will have an appeal for people that don't necessarily turn to film to be challenged or turned to film as art um, or as a metaphor. Um, <clears throat> and so if James Mangold had uh, made a film that was more overt about his his situation um, or his frustrations, um, it might have fallen on deaf ears. There might have been people who would say, oh, boo-hoo, you got paid who knows how many how many millions of dollars to, to do this thing that you like. Uh, you know, what do we care? But by couching that in something that does have a broader appeal and an appeal that is not inherently artistic, um, I think he's able to make his point in a way that uh, is a little bit more universal. Uh, And that will bring us to our companion film, which is Chef, written and directed by Jon Favreau. Now, if you know who Jon Favreau is, um, since 2014, he's only become a bigger name in the world of mainstream filmmaking. But by 2014, he had started out as a, uh, as an actor. And then he got into writing and directing and he made elf. 
Um, but I think probably his biggest contribution to the to Hollywood is that he directed the first and second Iron Man uh, movies, and by directing that first Iron Man, he sort of sets the he sort of set the tone for the rest of the MCU. Um, if it had been a more uh, heavy film, then who's to say that the MCU wouldn't have tried to be that, and maybe it wouldn't have been quite as successful. But he he achieves a certain lightness uh, with that first Iron Man movie. Uh, and then he made Iron Man 2, and shortly after that he made Cowboys vs. Aliens, or maybe it was just Cowboys and Aliens, now I don't recall. But um, but yeah, he, which didn't necessarily go great. Um, since then, he is, is one of the minds behind uh, The Mandalorian. He directed The Jungle Book, uh, the, the Jungle Book remake. Uh, he also directed the, in my opinion, horrendous Lion King remake. Uh, horrendous, not necessarily because of the. I don't know. Everything about that movie is just so misguided for me. I just don't think it should ex- it should exist. It really just feels like an experiment, which is like, hey, can we make the Lion King but with uh, a photorealistic quality to it? And it's like, yeah, you can. Who cares? You know, they don't bring anything else to it. Uh, they slow the story down, and they actually wind up making the characters m- much, much less uh, expressive and so uh, that frustrates me but I do think that his his Jungle Book isn't bad um, so he's an interesting filmmaker and definitely one that is like firmly in the mainstream except in 2014 and he makes this movie Chef it's a tiny little film it's got, a, it's got an amazing cast Favreau plays the lead that's worth noting but it's got Robert Downey Jr. Scarlett Johansson, Dustin Hoffman, John Leguizamo, uh, Leguizamo, pardon me, Amy Sedaris, Bobby Cannavale, Oliver Platt. Like these are these are heavy hitters in this, frankly, tiny film about uh, a guy who runs a restaurant. Uh, he is he doesn't own the restaurant, but he is the chef uh, at this very well respected restaurant, I believe, in Los Angeles. Um, I might be I might be wrong about the about the city, but uh, and he's kind of in a rut. You know, he used to, he was once considered a very popular, uh, a very edgy um, uh, chef, but uh, he's just sort of gotten into the routine and uh, a food critic sort of uh, calls him out on it and it, and it really makes him angry uh, and he wants to do different things. But the owner of the restaurant, played by Dustin Hoffman, says like, well, no, don't do that. Like, stick with your menu. This is what people like. And so it's like, so what are we saying here? It's, hey, I want to do, so, like, I was once this cutting-edge artist. I'm not anymore. The critics are starting to notice. I'm starting to notice. I want to do something different, but sure enough, the money people say, don't do anything different. Do exactly what what you've been doing. It's what people want, which is probably true, but it's not creatively fulfilling anymore. And so he he... Uh, quits that job. He's uh, he buys a food truck and starts uh, making cooking things the, the, that he wants to cook, and he's successful and he's much more satisfied with it. And so it's like, I mean, you know, I don't necessarily need to, given everything I've just said about Ford v Ferrari, but maybe even more obviously because the main character is played by John Favreau. Um, you know, it's the writing's on the wall. Like this is his. 
his response to working with Marvel and then trying and then doing, you know, Cowboys and Aliens, which again was it was I believe it was it was based on something, but it's a little bit different for him. It wasn't necessarily a, a guaranteed surefire hit. And I think he got hit because of it. Um, and so I think this was him meditating on who, where he fits in Hollywood and where he wants to fit in Hollywood and feeling like maybe he's being pigeonholed by the studio, by the audience, and by critics. And it's a really, really wonderful film and one of the things that I really like about it is that um, Oliver Platt uh, plays the critic and you know there are plenty of movies out there (laughs) that really demonize critics or at least make them out to be you know silly or pompous or whatever it is and yeah we we can be that Um, but the really good ones are the ones that say yes they can be that but they also have something else to do you know, they, they have a part to play here as opposed to something like lady in the water, which just treats its critic with, with pure disdain and treats the character as completely irredeemable as opposed to something like Ratatouille and something like chef where yes, the critic played by Oliver Platt is seen as haughty and, uh, is seen as sort of our antagonist, but it's mostly because he's disappointed. Like he really, loved what John Favreau was doing. There's a moment where he says like you were one of my guys, which is to say like when he was writing you know, when he was writing uh, as a food critic, like he said, "Hey, this is this is a guy to watch." And then eventually he wasn't a guy to watch. And you know, speaking as someone who does this, you know, non-professionally, um or at least semi-professionally, uh it can be frustrating when directors that you really love uh and really say like this is someone who's doing something special and then they start falling into just sort of the standard mainstream things like say a David Gordon Green or a John Favreau um, and it can be frustrating even if what they're doing is still pretty interesting uh, and so I you know on a personal note I really like I, I really like the way they um, they treat the critic in this film but yeah if you so if you watch Ford V Ferrari and chef together it makes for a really fascinating, um, meditation, not merely on filmmaking. There are plenty of movies that are about filmmaking without being about filmmaking. This is about mainstream filmmaking. This is about big budget filmmaking and trying to find who you are or, or hold on to who you are as an artist, uh, expand who you are as an artist under the watchful eye of the money people who They'll, they'll give you a little bit of rope, but not very much because they see you more as an investment than as an artist. And that can be a tremendously frustrating thing. Um, and so, you know, what does any of this have to do with Christianity? Um, I'll talk about I'll talk about it in an abstract way, frankly. Um, and this is more about, you know, people who are listening that might be filmmakers themselves or writers, uh, whether it be screenwriters or otherwise, people who want to express themselves and are Christian. As I said with Ford v. Ferrari, if James Mangold had simply made a movie about movie making, it it could be seen as self-indulgent, and it could really turn people off, and people might not have been quite as interested in seeing it. So instead, he 
you know, he's not lying. He's not uh, trying to deceive anyone. It's just the nature of metaphor. He disguises what he's trying to say with something that most people can agree with and, the, and make a point that most people will get. Um, and maybe the, and they might not pick up on, on the metaphor, but if you have someone who says, hey, by the way, if you think about it, this really is just a, 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 a nice um, correlation to, uh, to this other thing. And so, um, so along those lines, I just wanted to, I've got a, just a couple of verses here um, that have to do with parables. And the importance of parables. Because one thing that I find so fascinating about Jesus is that he, I mean, he he gave sermons. There's the Sermon on the Mount, for example. It's right there. It's the first word. Um, but sometimes he just told a parable. And sometimes the par- sometimes he would say what everything meant. Sometimes he wouldn't. And I imagine that could be really frustrating for some people. In fact, you, I, I know that's true. I've run across people who've said like, well, why wouldn't he just be clear all the time? And if we are, if we truly believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then we believe that he is, you know, tremendously wise. And in his wisdom, he saw that disguising eh, disguising sounds somehow deceitful or or whatever but you know dressing up his point in as something else as a story he saw that that would be more impactful and that people might might pick up on something and maybe if it wasn't quite so clear and they had to think about it and they arrived there um and they arrived at where he wanted them to to get it might it might feel more earned and they might feel more invested in the point than if he had simply said, Hey, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, you know, and that's, and there's danger there. There's danger in metaphor. There's always the possibility that a, someone just won't get it. And B, someone might completely misinterpret it. But if Jesus is willing to take that chance, then I think we as I mean, I'll say you, I didn't want to be accusatory, so I said we, but in actuality, I'm, I'm not a screenwriter, I'm not a filmmaker, um, you know, so I would encourage you to, like, so many faith-based filmmakers, and you know what, filmmakers in general, if they've got a message, if they've got a point to, to get across, it's so tempting to view film solely as a ministry tool, uh, that it's like, well, we'll just put the exact point we're trying to make in somebody's mouth. And maybe that can work. There are movies that in which that has worked. Um, but it's, yeah, it's fine if you want to see it as a ministry tool, but it is an art form. And if you, and I'd say most of the time when you're trying to make a point and you make it very clearly, uh, the art form tends to fall away and the ministry tool is all that's left. And people will feel like they are being preached at. And they may not, want that. Um, and so I've got, uh, I've got a couple of verses here. We've got Mark four verses, uh, 30 through 34. Uh, he said, um, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? 
It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches, branches pardon me, that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was along with his own disciples, he explained everything. He said nothing to them without using a parable. That There is danger there. But he saw that it was worth it. Um, similarly, here we have Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, uh, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So... You know, this is this is a kind of a hard hitting verse, and it's something that that Christians in general um, should pay special attention to. I, I, it always convicts me when I read it because I think like, all right, when thinking in terms of my faith, when thinking in terms of spiritual teaching, am I just drinking milk or have I moved on to solid food? Um, being that I've been a Christian f for as long as I have, it should be solid food. I should be able to think about this in a more complex way, um, as opposed to the the simple things that you know I'm currently uh, teaching my kids, even though they can't fully understand what I'm saying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're a Christian, this is something that really impacts you. But I would also say, as an audience member. You know, if we're looking at this last, uh, at the previous passage for, um, you know, filmmakers, then I'd say as an audience member, it's very, it's very easy for us to go into uh, a movie, and there's nothing wrong with escapism. I love escapism. I like the Marvel movies. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's very easy for us to go into a film and just say, okay. I'm bringing nothing to this. It is your job to meet me exactly where I am at all times. I will do no work. Um, I am not going to use my God-given intellect. Uh, there are so many people I've talked to that say, hey, I just want to turn my brain off. And again, it's an instinct I understand. I do, I do the same thing. Um, about halfway through recording this episode... Uh, I took a dinner break and I watched an episode of Frasier. Frasier is a very well done show, but not particularly uh, challenging intellectually. Um, but it was entertaining. And so, you know, it's not an instinct that I necessarily condemn. But I, I do think that, you know, earlier with, with Ford v. Ferrari, I talked about it like it's a movie for adults. And we're adults. And... Film is an art form. Yes, it's a form of entertainment, but it is also an art form. And when you're engaging with art, you have to be comfortable with it sometimes saying something you don't want to hear. And maybe something, maybe it's something you do want to hear. Maybe it's something that you're totally on board with, but it's disguised. It's, it's a metaphor. And you have to do the work to figure it out.
and we may not like doing that, but that is how we develop as Christians. That's how we develop as moviegoers. That's how we develop as people. Um, you know, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. That is how you get to be a better person, a stronger person, but that is not a pleasant process. Um, but it can be tremendously rewarding. Just like the people that would listen to Jesus' parables and work on them and, say, and think, okay, what is Jesus trying to say? Once they have arrived there, they can take a certain degree of ownership of that and say, hey, I did the work to get what he was trying to say as opposed to him just coming out and saying it. And that is the problem with a lot of faith-based films, and frankly, that's, a, that's the problem with a lot of faith-based audiences, is they want the ministry tool. They do not want the art form. And certainly the, the, the money people in the world of Christian film are more than happy to oblige. In the meantime, there are filmmakers who are looking to really engage with film as an art form and as a ministry tool, but they want to do it as best they can and in a way that seems effective to them, just as James Mangold with Ford v. Ferrari thought that the best way to tell his story as a mainstream filmmaker who is frustrated with the process, he thought that this true story about racing was the way to do it. Um, just as, as John Favreau thought, like, rather than make a movie about a filmmaker, I'm going to make a movie about a cook. Um, and so I would just say, you know, this, this episode may, may not have a lot theologically going on, but, uh, just, I would say, take it as a challenge as an audience member and as a, as a creative person to push yourself. And you know what? Hey, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a, uh, financier or something like that, if you're in a position to help somebody make a movie, uh, be willing to take a risk. And I understand like your money's on the line. That can be tough, but, uh, but be willing to take that risk because y you'd be shocked how well it can pay off. Um, so I think we're going to go ahead and leave it there. Uh, who knows when the next episode will be. I do have a, man, it's frustrating. I have a lot of episodes in mind because, uh, 2021 especially was a fascinating year. Um, and there's a lot to talk about, but, uh, in the meantime, uh, I do appreciate your, your patience, uh, with more than one lesson. I really want to, uh, say a special thank you to Bob Connolly, um, to the degree that More Than One Lesson is still alive, he's the one keeping it on, on life support. Uh, he's been writing all kinds of really great articles, uh, which are available at morethanonelesson.com, so you can check those out. Once again, uh, seek out my documentary, Valley of the Shadow, The Spiritual Value of Horror. It's on rediscovertelevision.com, uh, or you can find it on Vimeo. Uh, you're welcome to leave comments in the comment section of this episode. You can email me, tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter, at More Lessons. Um, I don't tweet much, but I do tweet from time to time. So thank you so much. Um, I do enjoy More Than One Lesson, even if I don't get around to it very much. Um, and I've enjoyed doing this episode very much. Hopefully uh, there will be another one coming relatively soon. Thanks so much. Bye.